So not too long ago, I held this workshop at WPPI where I gave my top 30 creative strategies to get photography clients as fast as possible without paid ads. And it killed it. It sold out. It was incredible. I've been sitting on it for a little while and I've decided to bring it back, to bring it back and to give it directly to you. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to pay anything either. I just want to help you grow your business each day for three days. I'm going to share with you 10 ultra unique creative ways to attract dream clients to your photography business without spending a bunch of money. I'm calling this thing the three day client blitz and it is pure gold for three days. I'm going to give you so many creative ideas to get clients in your business right now. Just go to sixfigurephotography.com forward slash blitz six S I X six figure photography.com forward slash blitz b l i t z i can't wait to give you some incredible ideas ladies and gentlemen welcome to the six figure photography podcast with ben hartley where we help you grow your business by winning more bookings, maximizing profits, and breaking through limiting beliefs. If you'd like to get early access months in advance to future episodes of the podcast, and actually to see visual references mentioned on air, head over to benhartley.com forward slash mastermind. That's benhartley.com forward slash mastermind. You can join over 18,000 other photographers in that group. Today, we have with us Craig Strong. Craig went from being a photojournalist to being an inventor of creative lenses. He founded Lens Baby in 2003 with the mission to empower artists to move through fear in order to discover creative freedom. That's what we're talking about today, how to move through our own fear and discover more and more creative freedom. Craig Strong, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. Of course, man. Craig, so you are out in Portland, Oregon. Is that correct? I am. Yeah. Usually rainy, but it's been blisteringly hot lately. <laughs> I love it. Craig, so you got your career in photography started as a photojournalist. Now, when I hear photojournalist, uh, I'm thinking I'm thinking newspaper, I'm thinking sports, or are we talking more street photography? Let's go back. So, yeah, I, I started... Uh, basically the moment I stepped into a dark room, I was hooked on photography. I had had a camera for years, but when I went to college, I got a job as a, on, on a school paper and, and that was it. So I worked in the college newspaper for years and, you know, for five years essentially, and started doing internships at local newspapers in the Los Angeles area. And, uh, when I got out of college, um, my, my career that I had in mind before that just went out the window and I was going to be a newspaper photographer. So I did start in newspapers and, and that involved sports and it involved a lot of, you know, nothing photographs at first as I was getting started and uh, looking at the, looking at the other weekly newspaper photographers that were winning all the national press photographer association awards every single month and uh wondering like how how do i see those moments that they're seeing hmm. and so there was a lot of failure along the way uh, i had an eye for composition uh, but those moments i kept missing and so um having having to have my name under a photograph um was was a lot of pressure and 
it was pressure that I thrived under. And so that's where I really cut my teeth as a photographer was in weekly papers. And then I went on to be uh, a freelancer at the Oregonian uh, for several years. And then commercial work and wedding work. I got talked into a wedding in the meantime by a newspaper. Uh, and, you and I both. <laughs> yeah. And, and I said no twice. And finally she didn't even let me talk the third time she called. She said, I'm not going to tell you what film to shoot. I'm not going to tell you what pictures to take, just shoot the way you shoot for the newspaper. I'm like, well, you know, pretty flattering. I, I don't know how to say no to that. And, uh, and it was one of the most amazing photo essays I'd ever done in my life because of the great subject matter. And Weddings have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it all happens in a known amount of time. I loved it, and so I got hooked on on shooting in that same manner, and uh, and that kind of launched my career as as a wedding photographer. And you know, eventually that led to um, you know another transition to my creative outlet, which which ended up being making my own lenses. We need to pause there for a second. I here's how you know someone is a photojournalist is when they describe photographing a wedding as a body of work that you use the word a photo essay. Now I, I studied uh, photography in, in college just a little bit, did some, some darkroom stuff as well. And, and I was always assigned, okay, you need to produce a photo essay. But for, so can you, can you uh, expand upon what a photo essay is? I don't think anyone has ever referred to a, at least on air, on this podcast, sure. referred to a uh, wedding photography work, the deliverables <laughs> as a photo essay. So, so unpack that a little bit. Well, if, if I were to go back and think about the photo essays that I, I did for the newspaper, they were few and far between, but every once in a while I would get like a quarter page and it was usually buried like, you know, mm -hmm. page 10 on, um, you know, the backside of, of the A section that nobody looked at unless they're looking at obituaries or whatever. But regardless, it was every once in a while I'd get a nice placement, but usually it was, it was uh, enough room for between three and five photographs. And so I had to tell a story that didn't lend itself to all being captured in one, in one image. So, you know, the vast majority of what I was shooting could be, or had to be captured in a single image. And so I got really good at, at capturing multiple moments or trying to capture multiple moments in a single image to tell that story as best I could with one image. But to, to know that I had five images to wrap up the the essence of this you know more complex story whether it was you know teenage moms um at a, at a special high school here in portland which i did for the oregonian and and knowing that hey i've got three images for this so what are those three images going to be so when i when i went into weddings it it wasn't you know hey i can i can do an unlimited number of images of course i was shooting film so it wasn't really unlimited then um and so I would shoot 10 to 15 roles, but it was thinking about within those roles, I'm going to expect maybe one truly storytelling image out of every two roles. And if I can, if I can bring this image down or this, this story down to between five and 10 images, uh, that, that will tell that story, um, then, then I've succeeded. And so that's, and, and like I said, it's the beginning, the middle and the end is, is a story. Any story has that. And so being able to take those skills from newspapers and bring them into an event that actually has a beginning, a middle and an end, because most of what I would do for the newspaper, it's like, well, that's the last photo I can take because, you know, I'm off to my next assignment. Um, and so I've got to, I've got to tell a story here, even if it's not complete, but weddings, they are complete when they're, when they're over, they're over. 
you know, we're, we're talking, we're going to be talking really about moving through fear to discover creative freedom. And as you were sharing this, I couldn't help but notice my, my blood pressure start to elevate just a little bit at the thought <laughs> of a couple limitations that you just described that actually elicited a sense of fear in me. And a couple of those, uh, uh, limitations that you just described was number one, um, you're photographing on film. And so like you've, you only have, what is it? 10, 11 frames, 12, 14. <laughs> Should I keep listing numbers? So I was, I was shooting 35. So it was 36 frames. Okay. 36. Frames. So you have 36 frames on a, on a, on a roll. Um, I just look at how I photograph right now. When I show up to a wedding, I will photograph 36, uh, images of the shoes <laughs> or the dress with before, you know, it even moves, uh, just for peace of mind. And, oh, I got something right. And, and, and this is probably a, a common trend in, in today's industry. And so it, w did you ever notice like a sense of fear of the, of the scarcity behind the the amount of photographs that you even had the ability to take, like, did that change how you photographed knowing you had 36 shots? Well, that's what I knew. It wasn't a, it wasn't the kind of thing where I had had unlimited amounts of film. I didn't, I never had a roll of film that had a hundred images on it. Mm. And so for me, that wasn't the fear. The fear was more about, um, showing up and not seeing moments. I mean, that, that would be the, the number one fear for me is not anticipating moments because I would see moments after they were as a photojournalist, after they were done and, and just beat myself up over them and, and realize that, Hey, that happened. I wasn't ready. I didn't get that. Mm -hmm. And so, so my fear wasn't so much about the limitation of film because I had, I pretty much put in my contract, an average, I would say I averaged 10 to 12 rolls per wedding, but I remember one wedding I did 24 rolls. Unfortunately, the client wasn't too upset about having to pay for all that extra processing because they got amazing images. Um, but I put right in there, this is, this is about what I shoot. Um, but it's pretty much unlimited. So I, it, it even though like now, if I shot a wedding, it'd probably be 4,000 images, 3,500 images. Um, at the time, going in thinking I've got 360 images to, to work with, to get those 12 images that really tell the story. Mm. That wasn't, that wasn't a problem. That was just a limitation of the technology that we had. Uh, and I lived with it. It was more of, it was more of the sense of this is, I'm going into a situation where I have to be on for that six hours, eight hours, 12 hours and, and tuned into a, um, uh, you know, a stranger's wedding, essentially, you know, I mean, not, not strangers after you've met with them several times and done an engagement shot shoot, but everybody else, there's strangers. And so I have to build trust. I have to do all the things as a photojournalist that I'd trained to do in a, in a new setting. I would say though, that my first 12 weddings, I did not sleep through the night. Like I kept waking up out of dreams where I forgot to wear pants, you know, or, oh, yeah. or, you know, no film or, you know, I, I, everything had been x-rayed and, and, you know, on the way to this destination wedding and, and it all turned out terrible, you know, it was all fogged. And so those kind of things for 12 weddings until, wow, I went through 12 weddings and nobody died. Um, my clients were happy. You know, I was thinking I could have done a better job, but the reality is like, I can always do a better job and I'll do a better job next time. And so that growth mindset started to kick in 
after I had had pushed through the fear of that first dozen weddings. I still have nightmares uh, today from past <laughs> events, from past weddings. I, I, I should take a poll over on Instagram to see how many wedding photographers have had a a wedding photography inspired nightmare. And I should maybe expand it out to portrait photographers. I imagine that the newborn photographers, they may even have worse. They may, newborn uh, photographers probably have night terrors. They probably wake up in shrieks. Oh, mercy. The, the other limit, they're not, yeah, maybe it's a limitation. The other fear that, that, uh, that came up when you were sharing a little bit about a photo essay is, you know, I, I, um, I'm heading up to WPPI here uh, in just a little bit. And one of the things I'm going to be doing at WPPI, apart from uh, a couple courses or classes rather, is I'm going to be um, sitting down with photographers and helping go through their portfolio, uh, do some portfolio critiques, but also call that work down. And as I've worked with photographers to help call their portfolios down and refine it to the best, the best, I notice that this is something that so many photographers are scared to let go of. We're scared to like, uh, remove work. We don't know, like, is this, is this the best story? Is this the best of my work? And so we just end up with portfolios, you know, with 150 images in them on our websites. And I'm curious what that was like to try to call down, uh, essentially at times a whole story down to one single photograph or at times an essay to three to five images. uh, I mean, was that as difficult as it sounds? It was the, the advantage I had was I had mentors at the newspapers, especially at the Oregonian that would come in and sit with me and help me make those decisions. Uh, Benjamin Brink, Craig Scatterella, those were two of the main people that I, I would, I would take my work to and, and they would help me really select and because you become attached to the image that in the moment you think that's it, but it's the image too before or right after, or, you know, you're thinking about when the lips, you know, as in a wedding, when the lips come together, that's the moment, but usually it's the anticipation of that moment that really has, has the power and the strength. And I think having someone else, um, you know, one having unlimited film when I was shooting in newspapers, cause I wasn't paying for it. I had essentially what any photographer now that has an iPhone has, which, which is, you know, the, the beauty and to, to the credit of, of visual art and, and of photography now of the people can learn from their mistakes, like right on the spot. Um, but I had that in, in the sense that, you know, I'd learn the next day after it got developed. Um, but I didn't have to pay for that, you know, and, and because my employer was, um, we get a little off track here, but the, um, you know, distilling things down to, to three to five images was something that I was used to, uh, from my newspaper days. And so it, it felt like when I, when I put together a, a wedding book of, you know, 20 plus images, it felt like, Oh, there's fluff in here. I don't need all this. Um, and, and it made me, um, make some really tight stories so that when I show my portfolio, uh, it would, you know, I'd have three images from one, one wedding in a book and then move on to five images from another and then four from another and try to tell that entire story just in these really, um, you know, powerful, hopefully storytelling images that, you know, maybe, maybe one wedding would just be one image because it was like, Oh, that, that sums it all up. But that was my goal. And that was my career and background. So it, it didn't feel 
it felt like a luxury. Like once I went into weddings, it's like, wow, these people want a hundred images. Seriously. You know, at the time from film or 125, that's what they expect. And they love them all. How's that even possible when I had editors, some of them, which would be, you know, absolutely brutal. I had, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, I had one editor at the AP that threw things at me and would drop F bombs because I was a half stop stop off on my, uh, on my exposure on images that printed just fine. But, um, so, so, you know, there's baggage there. Um, but for me to go in, I felt like wedding clients were some of the most forgiving in the world. So it was, it was opening up my horizons. It wasn't closing it down. Hmm. At some point you, uh, had this idea to, create your own lenses. And I'm trying to figure out how you went from photojournalism, uh, to a point where you, I make up that you had to have gotten, I don't know if fed up is the right word, but at some point you decided I'm gonna make my own creative lenses. Can you take me through the thought process that moved you from working in a newspaper? Uh, I imagine shooting 35 millimeter, uh, pretty straightforward to developing your own lenses. Yeah. And, and I, I want to explore that part of the journey and, you know, especially being that I was shooting on L series or when I shoot and switch to Nikon ED glass, um, that, that was the very best I could afford, mm -hmm. um, to moving into something that was more on the creative, more on the, um, you know, ethereal aspect, more about emotion and less about perfection. Um, but if I were to back up to the foundation of that, um, you know, philosophically, I, I see that everything that we do in life is motivated by things we have to do and things we want to do. And if I were to divide that into to two categories, there's overlap in both of those with things that we're scared to death to do. And so for me, if I were to go back, like, I think about being in, you know, a camp, summer camp as a kid. And one of the things I wanted to do, I was really competitive and I didn't have a lot of social skills. So I didn't get a lot of approval from, from many of the kids around me, but I really wanted to, to win the belly flop contest. <laughs> and, you know, I was a skinny little kid and, uh, but I would approach that. It's like, I would go out on that board and look at that water and, you know, I would say this is going to hurt and that's fearful, but I am not going to flinch. And every single time I would make the biggest slap on the water. Of course, the kid that weighed twice as much of me as me would, would get the number one, but I would, I would face that fear. I'm looking at pain coming at me and I would not flinch. I would stay straight as a board and, and down I go. And I would have satisfaction from the cheers and the, you know, the, the little amount of, uh, approval that I would get from my peers during that moment. It's like, okay, I've, I've got what it takes here as a, as a sixth grader. Cause I, I did my best in the belly flop contest. So that's one of those things. It's like, I want to compete. I want to win. And I'm scared to death of what this is going to do, but I'm still going to do it. Um, and I think that fear is whether it's something we want to do or something we have to do for me has, has been an indicator of the things that are important to me. Mm -hmm. You know, think of junior high, junior high was something I had to do and um, it, it wasn't fun. And I was afraid all the way through, but I look back on, on junior high and I said, well, I made it. 
I got through that. I did it. I wanted to survive. I got through the bullying. I got through the, the, you know, crazy stuff that went on with teachers. I got through the fights, all of that. And I look back and I go, no, I did it. I, I went through that gauntlet. And again, there was fear. I had to do it. And there was fear that, that permeated that entire experience. And I would say that for me, in my career, each time I've come up against something, like I, I mentioned earlier, that I I would see the contest winners in the National Press Photographers Association monthly regional contest, and I would look at these images and say, I was at an identical event at that middle school or at that high school or at that sporting event, and I know that that moment or a similar moment happened around me, but I did not see it. Um, and so for me, I, I was afraid that I'd never see it. And so I pushed myself to say, okay, look, look, always be on the lookout for something that isn't obvious to me right now, because a lot of things going in as an early, um, you know, as a young photojournalist, as a photographer without a lot of experience, they were just gone. I never saw it. Somebody else would be at the same assignment sometimes and come away with a moment that it was like, how did I not see that? How did I not anticipate that? So there was the fear that I'm never going to see it. Um, and then from there, I started seeing it, but I wasn't capturing it. So I would see a moment happen in front of me. And I'm sure you relate to that in regards to weddings. It's like, oh, you know, I had to shoot three weddings and see this very similar thing happen again and again before I started to say, hey, hey, that might happen at this wedding. Um, that might happen here. I'm, I should be looking for for, you know, the, the kid peering over the cake or, or that's going to dip his finger in the, in the frosting or whatever is going to happen. Um, and so I started seeing it and then I, I still wasn't capturing it. And I started being encouraged because at first I didn't even see it and I was afraid I'd never see it. And then I started seeing it. Uh, and I wasn't capturing it. I wasn't ready. I wasn't anticipating it. And then I started to capture those moments and I had to be able to anticipate it like that wedding, like that thing that you've seen again and again and again and not seen happen. And so I think for me, the fear um, that overlaps with, with um, that journey for me of moving from uh, a photojournalist who I was really good at capturing moments, anticipating moments, saying, there's energy happening over here. I'm going to focus my energy over here. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think something's about to happen. And boom, I would, I would be ready. And I would capture that moment more often, not more often than not, but more often uh, than I used to when I didn't even see it, especially. Um, and so I was, as a photojournalist, really comfortable in that place. And, and that brought me to a place of fear of saying, am I going to stop growing? Am I just going to be pulling on the exact same talents and skills and uh, strengths that I used when I was working in weekly and daily newspapers? Um, and so when I was exposed to uh, a friend of mine's artwork that she would shoot with a plastic camera, a Diana camera, hmm. um, cross-processing her film, um, everything was technically imperfect about it. And they were the most emotionally raw images that I had seen in my life, like of, the, you know, of anything. Like they, I would tear up in front of these and look at it and say, there is nothing about this image 
that I could have created because I was thinking, you know, corner to corner sharpness, you know, maybe I'd have a little motion blur, intentional motion blur, but my, my style was very limited to, uh, to what I had learned was acceptable from newspapers. And so that fear of, I, I might not be able to actually call myself an artist because I see this and I see so much artistic power in her images. Um, and, and then when I went digital, I was just ready to go because all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I don't have to get a Diana camera. I don't have to go through all this film. I can, I can experiment. And so that was the gateway to me saying, let's experiment with lenses that were never intended to go on my DSLR. And then that just blossomed into eventually what became lens baby. Yeah, I had a, you mentioned the Diana camera. I have one of those as well. I should say I had it. I don't know where it's at anymore. Um, and I had a similar response to seeing the imagery come out of it, um, of just kind of being amazed. And, and again, similarly, uh, everything that I had, I was looking for the edge to edge sharpness. I'm looking for the like, okay, I want perfect. I want crisp. I want sharp. I want clean. Uh, and then I got my hands on something that was imperfect and it, and it had, had a quality to it. And so those early days of experimenting of now putting, like you were saying, a, a, a toy lens on your camera, what were some of those experiments like? I think it redefined perfection for me because the, the big manufacturers were taking out, have really sterilized their lenses, even the art lenses, they're, they've, they don't have a ton of character. I mean, yes, we've got, we've got a limited palette of things and we've got amazing lenses out there. And I do, when I'm shooting a, an assignment, I still use my ED glass. I still use my primes. I still do that. But to, for me to be able to say, you know, perfection is, is bigger than that. And that, that bigger for me was playing with uh, things that, like I said, were never intended to go on my camera because what I found was I was able to shoot subject matter that was flat through my, uh, straight lenses, uh, in a way that, that actually came alive so that, so that the, um, the matching of the, the style with the subject matter made that subject matter come, come to life. Mm. So then with lens baby, and by the way, I'm sharing, I'm, I'm, I'm going through right now and I'm, I'm taking a look at some of the original film, uh, from, from the Diana, the Diana, what is it? The F plus, uh, camera right here, just, uh, kind of sharing this with the group who's watching live. Um, and just already just being taken back to like the, the quality of it. Um, how, how was this received from your, uh, uh, from your peers? You know, I imagine moving from, uh, the perfection into putting plastic on your professional camera. How, you know, how was the work received that you started to produce? Well, there's, there's two aspects to that, that, uh, are, are powerful and really influenced me to, to form a company around this. And one of them is that at the time Photoshop was capable of doing a lot of, uh, really cool stuff, but most of us were not trained to do that. Like I, I was trained to get my images to look like I could in a traditional dark room in a way that photojournalists uh, were allowed to. 
And so I was good at Photoshop, but going in and creating effects after the fact uh, was hard. And so when other photographers in, uh, in the Portland area, especially, because we had a great community of, of photographers that uh, met on a regular basis, and when they saw what I was doing, uh, quite a few of them were like, I want one, I want one, I want one. And so that, that spurred me on to say, oh, wow, maybe this isn't just another flash in the pan. Because I've been making stuff for myself. I, I made 100-foot-long um, TTL cables for, for assignments because I didn't really want to take a white lightning and put it in the corner of the gym. So I just take my, um, my SLRs, uh, speed light and put it up in the corner of the gym and it was good enough. And, uh, I had this TTL thing so I could change everything right there. So I'd been doing these things. I'd been making lighting modif modifiers, but I'd always made what I needed and then moved on. Like I'll, I'll use it once in a while and I'll come back. But with, with lens baby one, like it wasn't just a technical a bracket for the top of my camera or, or you know, for my TTL flash so that it could be on the camera and off the camera in, you know, one moment, you know, and, and I'm not just stuck with it in my hand. So that was one of the things I made. It wasn't just a technical solution like that. It was more of a, an artistic solution. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm here, I am buying lenses off of eBay sight unseen or entire 120 folding cameras off of eBay and putting the, putting the lenses onto shop back hoses and squeezing <laughs> them and taking them to weddings and seeing that my wedding clients were freaking out of the, over those images, those, you know, two to 5% of the images that I shot out at their wedding uh, and kind of ignoring the rest and the photographers that were seeing those images as they were coming out in advertising or, you know, we'd sit and talk and, and share prints um, they were like, well, I can't do that with any of the lenses that I have. Can you make me one? And so that, that was a huge, um, that was a huge aspect of the encouragement. And then I got asked to teach a workshop with Kevin Kubota and I didn't really have anything to teach. This is actually before I started, uh, taking those lenses off of cameras. And Kevin asked me to teach a workshop on the crazy lenses I'm using. I'm thinking, well, at the time it was just one wide angle conversion lens that I was screwing on the front of my 28 millimeter 1.8 Canon lens. And it was creating the, what classically is seen as the lens baby effect right now, but with a fisheye field of view, and then you could stop it down and kind of get it sharp, but then it'd have all sorts of color issues in the edge. Um, but I didn't even know where to get one of those. Like I bought it in New York, you know, in the times square for a ridiculous price, you know, it was way more than it was worth. Um, but, I, I bought it, screwed it on my lens and just started shooting before Kevin, I took Kevin's very first digital boot camp in 2002. And so he asked me to come teach at a workshop, his third boot camp, and I didn't have anything to teach. And I went, okay, well, you know, here's, I've, I've got the speed graphic camera. It has a long field of, you know, it has this big gap between the camera and the back of the lens if I can just find something to block out the light and see what it can do, I can probably tilt it and do stuff and, and shot back hose. I found it at a hardware store and it, it just snapped right in there. The retaining screw and, and washer on the back of the lens just fit perfectly. And, and so off we went. And then that was the other aspect. It wasn't just the local photographers and my clients that were liking the images and, and the local photographers wanting the, the uh, lens. It was the, 
the workshop attendees that were, you know, three workshops in, I was like, wow, you know, the majority of people, if not everybody there wants one. And I'm making them out of shot back hose and gaffer tape um, with, you know, magnifying glasses and old Holga lenses that I got off of holgamods.com. And because they were making pinholes out of Holga cameras and had all these excess lenses. So, um, so it was really twofold. One is more of a scientific approach where I was teaching people in a workshop. And then it was more anecdotal with the feedback I was getting from local photographers and my clients. I just pulled up a, uh, I, I have one of these, I have one of these, uh, I just put up on your website, the lens baby website. Um, something that looks very similar to what you just described, the shot back hose. I, I think you got the yeah. spark, uh, when you started to produce them for lens baby. Um, but you're exactly right. It is literally <laughs> my friends. If, if you want to go see the visual of what this is, you can head over to lensbaby.com or you can head over to the mastermind group and you can see what I'm talking about. I'm sharing the screen right now. It's literally like a, a imagine a lens mount that hooks onto your camera. And then instead of a lens right away, there's just like a black sh shot back hose, more or less a little bit, a little bit nicer than that. It kind of like moves around and then the lens element is on the front of it. And so with that, you can t tilt it and, sh and shift, like not really shift, but you could tilt it all over the place. Uh, and, and what effect is that producing Craig? So it, it depends on the optic that you have in it. We've got various optics with, with different, uh, they, it treats the subject matter and the light differently. Uh, if it's a curved field of focus, it creates a sweet spot. And so our sweet 35, sweet 50 and sweet 80 have one area of sharp focus. And when you bend the lens, uh, if you pull straight back, that sweet spot will be in the center. And then when you bend it, you move your sweet spot, you, you know, into the rule of thirds or off into the corner of your image. So you can match your point of interest with your, with your focus. So you're moving your subject's eye to wherever you want in the image because the rest of it just goes crazy out of focus blur. And then if it's a flat field lens, which is our edge optics, we've got the edge 35, we've got the edge 50 and the edge 80, and those are focal lengths um, in the numbers. And when you pull those straight back, they're just beautiful prime lenses. But as soon as you tilt them, uh, you get you get a slice of focus, so you can do a diagonal slice by focusing up and to the right, or down and to the left, or you know down into a corner, um, and then you get a horizontal slice by um, by tilting up or down. You get a vertical slice by tilting left or right. Those are the those are the most popular lens baby effects, and the very first one was that sweet spot. So you, um, again, when you when you don't tilt the lens baby and you just focus in the center, you get one area of sharpness in the dead center, and then you can move that around by tilting. Yeah, that has, as I'm looking at the gallery right now on the website, it very much has one of my favorite lens to date, and I'm sad that I left Canon uh, to start photographing on Fuji, but the one lens that I miss is the Canon 24mm tilt shift lens. Oh, I love that lens so much. Uh, just yeah. it, it, so much creativity came from it. But it, yeah, so this gives this gives you that tilt shift kind of effect, uh, that look. You can even do some of those like miniature effects on uh, on the right type of scenes here, the right settings. Um, Correct. Yeah. And while we don't have a 24, our widest is 35. Uh, we do tilt about twice as much as a typical uh, tilt shift lens, uh, far more than twice as much if you're using the uh, flexible body the, the based on a hose. Hmm. Um, but if you're using the ball and socket version, which is the Composer Pro 2 right now, it tilts about twice as much. So you get a much narrower slice of focus uh, and a much steeper um, 
you know, angle with your, with your edge optics. So the edge optics give you that, uh, the tilt aspect of a tilt shift lens, um, but on steroids because they, they tilt about twice as much and it's an exponential equation that, that determines how much blur they can produce. And you've got an image up here of a surfer and this is the typical or the, the classic lens baby look where there's one area of sharp focus and gradual blur as you move away from that spot. It's gorgeous. This conversation is reminding me of a conversation I had on an earlier episode of the podcast with Lali Rico. And um, we talked a lot about uh, her photography style. And I kept describing it on air as, as like a courageous photography style. It, it, like as I looked at the decisions she was making in her work, it was like she was faced with fear and, and she pushed through with courage to try to create something anyhow in the midst of a moment, just like the surfer that we're looking at right now, that's like fleeting. It's like, man, you, you might miss it. And yet she was taking these risks and was being rewarded. And I'm curious if that was an experience that you had in the process of developing these lenses and certainly using them of, of that, like, the high risk factor. I mean, how, when you're talking to photographers who want to use these really creative uh, decisions, um, but they're also thinking, but Craig, I have to get the shot. Uh, what do you say to them? Well, and that was our, our market initially was the, um, the wedding and portrait photographers. And so they were picking up our lenses. And the first thing I was telling them was, wait until you've got what your client expects so that you're not pulling this out for the, the important moments when you don't really know that this lens is going to nail focus or uh, that, that you're feeling uncomfortable about something and you're out of your uh, you're out of flow because you, you're not familiar with this lens. Now, some people picked this up and it became their signature look and, and shot with lens baby almost exclusively. Most of those were not professionals. So the, uh, your question, I think mainly applies to those professionals who are under the gun. If, if they don't get the image, it's going to hurt their reputation. And what I found was when I shot 5% of my images with a lens baby, when I was just, when lens baby wasn't lens baby, it was just one thing that I took up to Timberline Lodge and I was shooting, uh, you know, the very first prototype of, of this wedding. Um, and what I found was if, if I covered my butt, and did what I had agreed with the client to do and then surprised them with these images while I was learning, uh, that was the, that's what I needed to do in order to feel good about that. And I think there is a level of fear. Like we don't go into fear stupidly, you know, I'm not going to belly flop from 30 feet as you know, a sixth grader. Um, but I'm going to do what I know isn't going to kill me. And if we can go into it and say, okay, let's, let's take, fear one step at a time and face the fact that I may fail at this. I may not get good at this. This may not suit my style. Even after I master this new technique or this new look or this new lens, um, if we can take baby steps in that direction, um, and before we belly flop into the, the ice cold lake, um, then there is more of a sense of, um, of learning and, and progression and less of a sense of frantic, I have to make this work. So, uh, you know, I, I, 
I, I, I tell people, make sure that you're not risking your career while you're learning this, go have fun with it. Like go out with a single lens and just explore the world, whatever lens that is. But if it's lens baby, uh, you're limiting yourself in even more ways than most, uh, most typical lenses are limiting you. And you're going to see the world in a completely different way than you would if you were shooting through a straight lens and then thinking four steps ahead of what I might do with that in post-production. You know, this is one stage of the fear. We're talking about the the fear of, of like the of creating something that might not work uh, right. in your photography. And I'd like to transition this to creating a business that might not work <laughs> as a career and the fear that must have been there when you decided, okay, great. So I've been in my garage attaching hoses to the front of my $4,000 camera and with some, <laughs> some lens glass I can find on eBay. And that's worked for me. It's made me some interesting stuff. Now I'm going to go and manufacture this. Now I'm going to go produce sure. a company out of it. I can sure. only imagine even for the photographers listening today, uh, that there was probably a similar sense of fear of like, okay, so I'm not just going to photograph my nieces and nephews. I'm now going to announce to the world that I am a full-time professional photographer and this is going to be my career. Right. Can you talk about what that was like pushing through the fear of putting your stake in the ground and saying, okay, this is now going to be a thing. Yeah, there was a ton of fear. I, I, if I was uh, to look back and say, um, you know, that that was an obvious path, I'd say, well, it wasn't that, you know, what I did, <laughs> what I did was like, just crazy. Like, you know, this is, this is something, especially for me, I, I, I had been in business for myself since 93 when I realized that working a day at the Oregonian was, was going to pay me, you know, once a week was going to pay me what I was getting at my weekly newspaper. Uh, and out I went. So there was fear in that. So I looked back at these, these anchor points to say, well, I went out knowing that what did I have to lose? Like I wasn't making much anyhow. Um, and so in 93, I, I just said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a go. And, and then when I, um, I, so if I look back at those, those, those anchor points for me to say, um, you know, in, in, in college, I remember the, uh, the fear that I had for even going up to people on campus that I'd taken their picture and writing their name down so that I could get an accurate caption. I would basically have a panic attack in that. And I had to push through that, um, in the course of, of my, uh, photography business. I, I joined a network marketing company and it was, I was scared to death and I burned bridges with family and, and friends and would never go back and do that exactly the same way I did, except the fact that I burned bridges with, with a lot of people because I was selling something that I didn't believe in. By the time I came around to something I was passionate about with, with lens baby, um, I could sell it to anybody. Like, like I would be at a trade show and somebody would walk by and I'd be, I'd go up to them with utmost confidence that this was going to be interesting to them. Mm. Um, and so I think those things, whether they're mistakes, you know, a, a bad fit as far as a business model for me, 
um, or, or taking a risk that I knew, Hey, listen, what do I really have the risk here? Cause I'm not making much money anyhow. Um, those are the things that prepared me to say, um, yeah, I've been, I've had my photography studio for 10 years. People are resonating with this. The one thing I learned in that network marketing company was that my time and money as a photographer, if I'm trading time for money, I'm limited. And I wanted to start a family. And I did not want, uh, you know, the, the more successful I got to have less and less and less time, uh, which was what I was looking at. And so I had in my mind, if I can, if I can sell a product, if I can, um, to move into a slightly better model for myself, then that might help me achieve my dream. So I was, I was prepped for that. And by the time it came around, it was just another one of those moments for me of just like in 93, when I said, what do I have to lose? I was like, you know, I'm risking everything every month for the last 10 years. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to have the money to pay my bills next month, but somehow it's worked out and this looks promising. So let's do it. And honestly, part of it was that I, uh, I, we did not, my business partner and I, because I knew one of the things I learned in my photography business was I had weaknesses that I had to staff. I, I could put systems in place, but it took like 300% of the effort that it would take somebody that, that their mind had more executive function, more, you know, less right brained. And they were more able to just immediately look at something and make sense of a spreadsheet and, and that kind of stuff. So I, I knew that, okay, I cannot spend my energy there if I'm really going to be creative, which is what brought me to this opportunity. Um, and all of that came together with a team and putting a team together with, you know, one, a business partner, uh, who came in and ran the business while I came up with the product ideas. Um, and that was probably the biggest foundation because those failures of, putting partial systems in place. You know, you, you talked with uh, Mike McDermott and, you know, I use fresh books and like, if that had been available in 95, 97, 2000, 2003, I may not have done this because it would have made my photography business so much more enjoyable. You know, you, you, you Gusto is one of your advertisers. Oh my gosh. Like to, to know that these tools are available and to know that it was so hard. I, I ended up hiring my people through a temp agency and paying another 20% just so I didn't have to deal with any of that. Um, there are so many tools right now that, that take a lot of those weaknesses out, but they weren't there then. So I knew I had to staff my weaknesses. And so I brought someone in who dealt with the marketing, who formed the website, who funded the, um, the uh, patent and off we went. And I like to say that Sam, uh, I, I brought Sam a product that sold itself and Sam showed it to the world. Mm. And um, you know, there was tons of anxiety about all that. But the one thing was I knew I was going to live. I had, I had gone through these other experiences. I, I approached perfect strangers about uh, opportunities that I'd never uh, really believed in. Um, and I'd live, you know, and I'd gained skills in that. And I gained the ability to sell something that I truly did believe in as it turned out. Mm. Um, and this, this revolutionized the way I saw the world. And so I wanted to share that. So it was, it was a no brainer. So even though it was scary, it was like, yeah, it's scary every month. <laughs> 
Yeah, and it sounds like it, it became that indicator of like, well, this is scary. It's probably the right thing to do. <laughs> it's like exactly. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that. It's that overlap. Is this something I want to do? Yes. And it does it scare me? Yes. Okay. And then there's a good indication that that's important to me. What do you say to the photographer who's listening to this that is recognizing that it's time, that it's time and yet it's scary? Like it's time for them to maybe take a, a pretty big step. And that looks differently for everyone. And so I'll give a couple of examples. One, one of the biggest steps I see photographers having a, a lot of hemming and hawing about in Facebook groups I'm a part of is like, is it time for me to quit my day job? Is it time for me to go full time and actually try to make a go at this? Right. Um, for some, it's even just like that initial step of like, am, am I ready to start charging for what I'm doing to actually start to make a business out of this? And so they're sitting in that place of fear that's holding them back uh, on the other side of it. We're talking about is creative freedom. And yet, nevertheless, we're faced with it. There's a wall in front of us. What do you say to a, a photographer or a business owner who's faced with that right now? That's a great question. And I'm, I go back to like each of our journeys are different. Mm -hmm. I, I had a mentor who swore early on in her photography career that apart from teaching and mentoring other photographers, she was not going to do anything for money. Like, like it was, it was her creed that she only created for the sake of art. She did not sell that art and she would teach and, and it was Cherie Heiser and she affected so many people's lives in with that choice. And so hers was a very different decision than for me, for me being afraid of not being able to make it, that was a challenge. And so I think you need to determine like is, it, what is your journey and what is the, the goal that you're called to? What is the, you know, what is that greater good that you, that you're after? Are you are, does becoming uh, a photographer who charges for their work fit into that, um, that vision that you have of your future? Because I think as we look, you know, does it, does it help meet our goals for, uh, for life? And does it fit in there? And, and I think my, I, I challenged her at times and she got a little defensive because my journey, that's all I could see. I, I'd be like, if I don't charge for this, if I don't raise my prices. If I don't go out and get more clients, that's a failure to me and my vision. Um, and I had to step back and realize, you know, that's not the path for everyone. Mm. Um, some people's path is creating that art and, and finding that, I mean, I've got, I've got books full of drawings that, that nobody sees. And I find great satisfaction in just pen and paper that I just pull out and, and I'll just doodle. And I find that outlet. And so photography might be an outlet for someone. However, if your journey is, and your, your passion is to move into um, that charging and that, or the, the financial rewards that can come from your work. Um, I, my advice would be one strength, uh, staff your weaknesses, go out and look at the things like, you know, the tools like Gusto, like fresh books that, that can say, okay, I, this will allow me to spend more time on the creative aspect of it. Um, go, go find an editor. If, if you don't want to do the editing on your work and, and then second would be 
like go in with a, a fully formed as best you can, a fully formed uh, business model that you, you know, one of the things that, um, uh, a friend of mine down in Texas, uh, JVS photography, he, he came into his business with things like, like contracts that were so ironclad and tight and protected him. Like he put right in there that 18 months after the wedding, you get all the files. And for me, I never put that in there. It was more ambiguous. And so now I, I just had someone call me about a wedding from 97 and I need to go into my storage unit and grab the negatives and find the And she didn't have the number. It was just in a collage on her wall. And so for me, there's, uh, there's things that I wish I had done differently. So I think going in with more of a, um, a fully formed idea of, okay, how does this work? I would consult with someone, you know, Ben, I don't know if you do any consulting, but if, if someone would approach someone like you and say, what would you have done differently? Mm-hmm. Um, and what systems would you have put in place? Because before you start charging, if you can put those systems in place, uh, like the fresh books, like the gusto, like the things that, uh, will staff your weaknesses, uh, you're going to have a much better chance at success and being able to focus on your creativity. I love that. Staff your weaknesses. That's incredible. That's an incredible advice. Um, Craig, where can people learn more from you? Where can they see more of these crazy lenses that you've developed? Uh, where can they find you online? Lensmaybe.com is the best place to go. And uh, you can find all of our other uh, outlets through that. And um, yeah, that that's that's where I'm sending you. I love it. Craig, thank you again uh, for coming on air today with us. I really appreciate your time, your ideas, your knowledge, your insight. You've been an incredible help. You're welcome, Ben. I I appreciate uh, you taking the time to tell my story and, and you do a great job at that. Thank you again. Podcast listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you'd like to get the show notes, you can head over to benhartley.com forward slash podcast where you can see everything there. If you want to get a chance to uh, see any of the references that Craig and I were talking about, I I pulled up um, the Lens Baby website to look at the galleries of the work and the different products that they have. Head over to the mastermind group, again, benhartley.com forward slash mastermind, and just go ahead and search for Craig's name, Craig Strong in the group, and this video will pop up. Thank you again for listening. We will see you in the next episode of the podcast. Until then, keep showing up.